chapter 19, if you would please. The Gospel of John, chapter 19. And we've been discussing for several weeks all of the events that surrounded the crucifixion. And today, we come to the last message where we still see Jesus hanging on that cross. They put him on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. They nailed his hands and his feet, and they hoisted that cross up, and Jesus hung there bleeding and dying. Six hours have now passed, and in those hours, the men of this world did their very worst to the Savior. But while they were doing that, in those same hours, God was doing his very best for the human race. This was the singular most important event in the history of the world. In fact, world history means nothing at all if we don't know about the death of Christ and what he did on the cross. We can do our best to uh, discover the meaning of life. We can talk about world events. We can speak about world history. But if we miss the crucifixion, then we've missed the whole reason of why we are here. And we just thank the Lord for Jesus who came to die for us. Christ's death was more important than the discovery of the new world. It was bigger than the invention of the printing press. It's greater than all the technological advances that have happened since the beginning of man. All history points back to this one point, one man's death, the God-man, Jesus, as he died on that cross. Well, just before Jesus died, he spoke the words, "'It is finished.'" We studied about that last week, and when he had spoken those words, he voluntarily gave up his life. And he spoke, and he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And at that very moment, Luke records that Jesus gave up his spirit. In other words, Jesus commanded his life to expire. Well, then the soldiers did an amazing thing because they took a spear And they pierced his side. And the Bible says there flowed out blood and water. Well, John mentions the blood and the water because I think that they hold very great significance. And that's what I'd like to speak to you about today. The blood and the water that flowed from the wounded side of Jesus. I'd like for you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word. In John chapter 19, I want to begin reading today with verse number 30. John 19, verse number 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. And of course, that's John's way of speaking of himself. He's the witness to this. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, I just ask you, Lord, that you would open up your word to us today. Help us to learn something. Help us to look at the blood and the water that flowed from Jesus' side. And may we see the redemption that was accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
Theologians have debated for centuries, centuries the significance of the blood and the water that flowed from Jesus' side. And I have to be honest with you, I don't know of any passage in the Scripture that explains specifically why this happened or what the blood and the water represent. But I know there has to be a reason for it because John is very careful to explicitly explain exactly what he saw. And John wants us to know that he bears record of it, or as we would say in our language, he swore that this was absolutely true. And I believe that it is in our best interest today if we examine this and we look at this to see what this must mean because John has stated it so emphatically. Now today I'd like to suggest to you three reasons that might help us to understand why John talks about this particular event. First of all, I believe that John wants to show us the fulfillment of Scripture. He wants to show us that Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament had to say about him in his death. Now, from the start uh, to the very finish of the crucifixion, we've, we've seen that, that uh, events perfectly match details that are outlined in the Old Testament Scriptures. And if you ever have any doubt that the Bible is true, all you really need to do is go look at the Old Testament Scriptures concerning the death of Christ, and you'll find Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled. Now, throughout our study of John, we've discussed many prophecies that the Bible gives us concerning Jesus. We've talked about the prophecy of his birth. That was foretold in the Old Testament. We've talked about uh, the one who came before Jesus, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner. And the Bible described how that he would have a ministry where he would introduce Jesus into his public work when he came. We've also talked about the signs and the miracles that Jesus did. And that was also told about in Old Testament Scripture. We've spoken about the friend who would betray Jesus, and very clearly the Bible told us that as well. On and on we could go with all different kinds of prophecies of Old Testament Scripture that were fulfilled in the life and the death of Jesus. And as we come to this particular portion of Scripture, we find the same thing. It's no different here because Scripture is still being fulfilled. Now, I want to give you first here three fulfillments of Scripture that are very pertinent to the story that we're speaking about today. First of all, the Bible tells us that Jesus drank vinegar. Now, if you'll look back at verse number 28, the Bible says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Well, what is the scripture that was fulfilled when Jesus said, I thirst, and then they passed him that vinegar? Well, it comes from Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And so Jesus spoke those words, I thirst, and here we find that a very minute detail of scripture is being fulfilled. And I mention this particularly because of the next prophecy that comes. Now, we're going to talk about these words, I thirst, again in just a moment, so keep that in your mind. But that that relates to the next prophecy concerning the breaking of his bones. And the miracle of this was that no bones of the body of Jesus were actually broken. His bones were not broken. 
And I want you to remember that as we study this, John is very careful to describe certain events as they relate to the Passover. On several occasions, John has talked about this being the Passover time. And here we find that the Jews were in a hurry-up mode to crucify Christ. They needed to get this over with because it was Passover time. They need to get the bodies down off the cross because it was time to celebrate the Passover. And we looked at this before and we saw earlier in chapter 18 that when they came to Pilate's judgment hall that the Jews would not even enter there to, to witness against Jesus because they had already been ceremonially cleansed in order to celebrate Passover. Now, what was so remarkable about that is these Jews were so concerned about meticulous little details about the Passover observance And yet they had no qualms at all about celebrating it with the blood of an innocent man crucified. They had no problem at all celebrating this with the death of Jesus on their hands. But here we see the timing is just perfect. It's Passover time. Everything with the crucifixion fits in with God's plan that Jesus would be our Passover lamb. Now, one of the details of the Passover observance was that no bones of the sacrificial lamb could be broken. In fact, the Jews were very careful about this. The priests had a method of killing the animals, killing that lamb, so they were very sure that they would not break any bones while they did it. They wouldn't cut this lamb in any way in order that a bone would be broken. Well, God gave that specific instruction in the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 12. He said, In one house shall it be eaten, eaten, that's the lamb, thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. Now, that was given to Moses in the very first Passover observance. God told Moses to kill the lamb. He said, put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost and the lintel of your houses. And on the night when the death angel comes, he will pass over your house. He'll see that blood and he'll pass over. And folks, it's very important that if Jesus was going to be the Passover lamb, the one who perfectly fulfilled scripture, then no bones of his body could be broken. Now, Psalm 34, verse 20, gives us that prophecy concerning Christ's bones. It says, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Well, the significance of that statement in relation to the fulfillment of prophecy is that the decision to break his bones came after Jesus had already died. Now, let's rewind for just a moment and go back to his words, I thirst. When Jesus spoke the words, I thirst then perhaps we could say, well, Jesus knew what the Scripture said. So he said, I thirst. He expected them to pass the vinegar to to him. And in that, he forced the fulfillment of Scripture. He made sure that it would happen when he spoke, I thirst. And so we can see why that Scripture was fulfilled. But when we come to this particular prophecy, Jesus was already dead. His life had expired. He'd already given it up. And so he had no control over this, the breaking of his bones. Now, we've talked about the cruelty of the cross in several messages. And breaking his legs truly was another barbaric aspect of crucifixion. When a person was crucified, the ability to use his legs was crucial to how long that that person could suffer and live on that cross. 
Now, usually it would take several days for a person to die on the cross. And during the suffering that they endured there, the person would use his legs to push himself up in order that he could breathe. Pushing up relieved the pressure on the diaphragm. And so he was able to breathe. And if he couldn't do that, he would very quickly suffocate on the cross. Well, in this particular case, a quicker death than normal was needed. Usually, they left the bodies on the, uh, on the crosses for, for several days. It would take several days for them to die that way. But this is the Passover time. And, and in order for the Passover to be celebrated correctly, they couldn't leave dead bodies hanging on the cross. And so in order to hasten the death of the criminal, the soldiers would come and with an iron bar, they would break the legs of the person on the cross. Now, I don't want you to think about that as being a quick hit, an easy break, so that the shock of it or the pain of it's over very quickly. No, 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 not at all. These people knew how to do this. And they knew how to take an iron bar and hit across the shins of that criminal in such a way that the bones splintered in their legs. It was very painful. It added to the horror of the cross. And of course, when the person could no longer use his legs, it was impossible for him to push up with them. And so he suffocated very quickly and died very quickly. Well, the remarkable thing about this is that when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And so the soldiers, without even knowing it, they fulfilled this prophecy. They skipped over Jesus and they went to each of the other two and broke their legs. In John, uh, in the 36th verse of this 19th chapter, it says, For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. But that's not the end of the fulfillment, because we see something else. Also, his side was pierced. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. Verse number 37 says, And again, another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. And that scripture is referring to the Old Testament book of of Zechariah 12, verse number 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Do you need proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be? I don't need any proof. I, I already accept everything the Bible says by faith. But if you have any doubt about it whatsoever, all that you need to do is just go to the Old Testament scriptures and you'll find that there are over 300 scriptures concerning the life and the death of Jesus given in Old Testament prophecy. And the Messiah fulfilled those things. Now, folks, the only person in the history of the world who was ever able to accomplish and to do all those Old Testament prophecies was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could have fulfilled them. All the Old Testament prophets point toward Jesus. And so when John the Baptist spoke those words, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, he knew exactly what he was talking about. He was Jesus. Now, for whatever reasons might John record this specific event, well, I think that also he tells us about this because this is the final act of shame. Now, the scriptures are being fulfilled, but this is also the final act of shame. I mean, there was no reason for these soldiers to thrust that spear into his side. It was already apparent that Jesus was dead. And if they had any doubt about it whatsoever, they would have just broken his legs. 
If he had swooned, like some people suppose and argue about this, then they would have broken his legs just like they did the other criminals. They didn't didn't have any reason why they wouldn't want to break his legs. But of course they couldn't though because he was the Passover lamb. He's the Messiah. His legs couldn't be broken. But I think that we see something here. We see more shame heaped upon Jesus because of the rejection of his people. He was rejected by the religious Jews. Now, this was indeed the Passover lamb. Jesus was that lamb. But the people are so concerned. They were so concerned about keeping the Levitical law. They were trying to keep every detail so specifically that they could not see the fulfillment of it. They were blind to who he was. Now, the body of Jesus had to be taken down from that cross because the Jews were not about to let his dead body defile their Sabbath observance. They had no compunction at all for killing the Son of God. And so they demanded that the legs of these criminals would be broken. They didn't want those dead bodies to still be hanging there on the Sabbath day. Well, that was a terrible thing to do. But what we see here is what happens when you have religion without Jesus. Here's what happens when you have religion without Jesus. Religion by itself is nothing more than man's attempt to appease a a, a, a supreme being. And so people will go into their rituals and all of their rites and things that they practice. And they think that they're going to, to, to appease their God that way. These were religious people. But folks, religion can be very bloodthirsty without Jesus. You know, I can talk to you about Islam today, and I can talk to you about how that is a bloodthirsty religion because they don't know Jehovah God. They don't worship the true God. And so it's a bloodthirsty religion, and all the world is rightly afraid of them today. The terrorism because of that, it's bloodthirsty. You know, I've made several trips to the airport recently, and I've seen those amber lights on the sign that says, this airport is on high security alert. And why does it say that? Because somebody's religion tells them that it's all right to kill innocent people on airplanes. That's a bloodthirsty religion. I could talk to you about that today. Go over there to, to the, the Middle East and you can see Arabs and Jews killing, killing one another on a daily basis, all in the name of religion. I could talk to you about that. But there's no need for me to go into this and talk to you about religions that worship false gods. What about religions that claim to worship Jesus? What's been done in the name of Christianity? Well, you can go to Northern Ireland and see the warfare between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. Now, there's some peace there at the moment, but it's a very dangerous place to go. Look at the history of the the dark ages, and you see millions of believers who were tortured and burned at the stake and killed in various cruel ways in the name of Jesus Christ. Thousands, millions upon people were killed at the hands of Roman Catholicism and also, in many cases, at the hands of Protestants. That's what religious formalism does. Religion kills But Jesus gives life, gives life. Religion rejects Jesus. And folks, they bring shame upon the name of Jesus by using him as a cloak to mask their evil hearts. Here's something that you need to decide today. Are you more interested in being religious, having your religion? Or are you more interested in being born again, being a follower of Jesus Christ? Which one of those interests you the most? Keeping rights? and rituals, and doing those things, or being born again and serving Jesus Christ. 
Well, it was a shame. This was God's chosen nation, and yet they were complicit in the death of the true Messiah. So it was a shame that he was rejected by those Jews. But not only that, it was a final act of shame because he was reviled by the Roman soldiers. We can't put all of the blame on the Jews. The Gentiles are guilty as well. Now, folks, these Roman soldiers, they were a cruel lot. It seems incredible to us, but there were, there were some of those soldiers who even asked for crucifixion detail. It didn't bother them at all to raise a hammer and take nails and drive them into a, into a person's hands and feet. That didn't bother them at all. They devised that crown of thorns. You know, that was the Roman soldier's idea. They devised that, that crown of thorns that they pressed down into the brow of Jesus. They didn't have to do that. It wasn't a requirement of crucifixion for them to do that. But they were cruel. And so they took that whip also. And they lashed his body until it was a bloody mess. They spit in his face. They hit him with a stick. They beat him unmercifully. And here we find in one last act of cruelty, they wanted to desecrate his dead body. He was dead But they took that spear and they thrust it into his side anyway. They were brutal, sadistic. We might even call them psychotic. I don't know. But they didn't bother them at all. It was a final act of shame and desecration. And you know what this shows us? It shows us that Jews and Gentiles alike. And folks, that means all people. It means us too. That we are complicit in the death of Jesus Christ. The Jews thought that they were better than the Gentiles. They're God's chosen nation. But were they indeed better than Gentiles? What what did Paul write about it in Romans chapter 3? He said, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have both proved before before that Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And if I could borrow Paul's line for just a moment, I want to ask, looking back at the cross and seeing what was done there, let me ask, what then? Are we better than they? And the answer is no, we're not better than they were. We're all guilty of crucifying Christ. But I want to go on to the next point because this is the most important part of the sermon. This is the application part. Why does John record the piercing of his side? Why is he so emphatic to say, I saw this. I bore a record of it. This record is true. You know, it's an amazing thing that Jesus' death is recorded in only one sentence. He says, when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. One sentence is all he used to explain the death of Christ. But now he takes seven verses to explain to us what happens next. So there must be something very important about this. What does he want us to know? Well, I think it's this. Here it is. The fountain of salvation. Now, he wanted to speak to us about fulfillment of Scripture. And he wanted us to know about that final act of shame. But his main point here is he brings us to the place that we understand the fountain of salvation. Now, this Scripture has produced a lot of discussion for a long time about the medical reasons for Christ's death. Now, we know that Jesus died, of course, but the question comes up, medically speaking, what is it that caused him to die? Well, there's some people who say that Jesus died of a broken heart. They say that the spear went into his side, it pierced his heart, and therefore he died. Well, that makes a beautiful preaching point. The only problem is it's not true. 
because he was already dead. Jesus didn't die of a broken heart. The scriptures say that before that soldier ever got there with the spear, he was already dead. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already. So I think we can safely say Jesus didn't die of a broken heart. Now, perhaps we might say that he died with a broken heart, but he didn't die of a broken heart. Well, medically speaking, then, how is it exactly that Jesus died? Was it asphyxiation? No. Did he die from loss of blood? No. How did he die? He told us himself in John chapter 10. He said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So the Jews and the Romans, they crucified Jesus, but they couldn't kill him. He released his spirit. He gave it up. He decided when it was time to die. And that explains to us, of course, why Jesus died in such a short time. It took only six hours. He was dead after six hours on that cross. What normally took days for a person to die, Jesus did in six hours. And so if you're looking for a medical reason why Jesus died, stop looking. There isn't one. The only reason Jesus died is because he commanded his own life to be given up. When sin was atoned, when the very last sin that he intended to pay for was paid for, that's when he gave up his life. And that's when he said it's finished. That's when he says it's over. And so it was an act of his will and his will alone by which Jesus died. Now I say Jesus didn't die of a broken heart. Perhaps he died with a broken heart. The Bible doesn't even tell us which side that Jesus, uh, which side was pierced. We have no idea whether the spear even could have reached his heart. Maybe it was on the other side. But one thing that we do know, there was a gaping wound that was left there. And when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, Thomas came to him and Jesus said to him, Thomas, thrust in your hand into my side. So we know that the wound was there. But now John records this amazing thing. He says, but one of the soldiers with the spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Now here I think John hones in on exactly what he wants to say. His emphasis here is the blood and the water that came pouring from that wound. Now I want to suggest to you two things that we can learn about the blood and the water. First of all, we can learn this. We are protected from wrath. Now, let's talk about that blood for just a moment. What is it that the blood of Jesus does? The blood of Jesus washes away our sin. And the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners without exception. That plain fact is stated many times in many different scriptures. Sin is the breaking, the transgression of God's law, and that means that there's guilt because of breaking his law. A penalty has been incurred because we've broken the law. Just like when you break the laws of the United States. If you break the law, there's a penalty that's associated with that. And likewise, since all of us are guilty of breaking God's law, there's a penalty that has to be paid. Now, God's penalty is wrathful punishment in the everlasting fires of hell. Sin is against an infinitely righteous God. And so when man dies and goes to hell, his sin has to be paid for, and since it's against an everlastingly righteous God, it takes an everlasting hell. He'll be there forever, and in fact, he'll never pay for his sins. Now, the wonderful thing is, though, that somehow and in some way, 
The blood of Jesus Christ is able to wash away the guilt of our sin. When you trust Jesus as the Savior, he takes his own precious blood and he washes away your sin. He removes the guilt of sin. And so when you stand before God with that blood applied, you are not guilty before God. Now that's what we call justification. Justification means the legal issue. The penalty of sin has been taken away so that you no longer have to face God's wrathful punishment. You're protected from wrath. And when John saw that blood flowing down, he saw the fountain that washes away sin, the blood of Christ. Now let's go back for a moment to the thought of the Passover. God told Moses to instruct the households of Israel to kill a lamb. And they took the blood of that lamb and they spread it on the sides of the, and the top of the door... And the application of the blood caused the death angel to pass over. Now, that means that death would not visit that house. And when you trust Jesus, what he does, he takes his blood and he applies it to the doorpost and the lintel of your life. And because that blood is there, God's judgment against you is adverted. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The hymn writer wrote a song that we've sung so many times. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. It's the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. But blood's not the only thing that flowed from his side. There was something else. There was also water. What does the water represent? Well, the water represents that we are purified from wrong. Now, the blood takes care of the problem of sin. Justification takes away the guilt of sin. But we've all got this problem of sins. In other words, we have this daily defilement of our sins. Now, if you're a Christian and I ask you to raise your hand today, do you ever fight against sin? Do you ever have a problem with sin? All of us would have to raise our hand. We have a problem with the daily defilement of sin. Now, let's go back to Moses one more time. If you remember, after the death angel passed over and um, the children of Israel uh, were were saved, uh, God killed all the firstborn males in Egypt, and so Pharaoh decided to let the people go. So Moses took this huge company of Israelites, and he went across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. Well, that wilderness was desert area. You can imagine that after a very short period of time with Maybe two million. Some people go even so far as to say there could have been six million people that left Egypt. At a very short time, water is going to be a problem. Where are they going to get water? Well, when the people couldn't find water, Moses prayed to God. And so God says to Moses, well, Moses, there's no problem here. I'll take care of the problem for you. What I want you to do is there is a rock over here. And I want you to take your rod and I want you to strike that rock. And when Moses hit that rock, the rock split in two and water started to gush out. Now, curiously, in the New Testament, Paul brings this this moment up and he tells us what that was all about. He tells us who that rock was. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he says, that rock was Christ. That was Christ. And Jesus is the rock of our salvation, smitten by God. Jesus calls himself living water. Remember John chapter 4 in speaking to the Samaritan woman? I'm living water. 
And the water that flowed out of that rock that Moses hit kept those people alive. That's what kept them going. Now, friends, Jesus is the living water. And when he was stricken on the cross of Calvary, he also gave us living water. Justification is the deliverance from the guilt of sin. But we have another process that we go through as Christians, and that's sanctification. Sanctification is our daily washing away from the defilement of sin. Well, what is this water? What's the water represent? Is the water baptism? Well, no, baptism doesn't have any power to wash away sin. What is it? Well, I believe that the water that flowed down from the side of Christ represents the power of God's word. We're washed from our daily defilement by God's word, the water of the word. Ephesians 5.26 speaks of the church of Christ, and, and the apostle says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now, interestingly enough, that all fits together perfectly because in, in, in John chapter 1, John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the living Word is Jesus Christ, and His Word is what washes us up from all of our wrong. Now, you may be struggling with things in your life. Perhaps you have anger in your life. You're struggling with a bad temper. Perhaps you have bitterness in your spirit, and that needs to be taken care of. Maybe you have lust in your heart, and you need to get rid of that. Well, the only way to do that as a Christian is to go to the water of God's Word. Be washed in His Word. Stay in God's Word, and He'll wash you from that defilement. You remember when when Jesus was at the Last Supper and all the disciples, and He bent down to wash the disciples' feet? You remember what Peter said? He said, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. And you know what he was telling him? He was showing him an example of how we need to be washed from our daily defilement. It has to be taken care of. So we've got to go to the water of God's word in order to be sanctified. We have to be washed clean. So we're justified by the blood and we're purified and we're sanctified by the word. I'm glad that John gave a record of this, aren't you? Aren't you glad that we have all these Bible stories that when you study it out, it all fits so perfectly together and the Bible tells us exactly who Jesus is, what he came to do and explains to us how he is our savior, how he takes care of our sin and how he gives us a life that we can live for him. Now I want to close with this last thought today. You need to ask yourself this question. When you think about that spear that pierced Jesus, think about this. Is my heart broken? Is my heart broken when I look at the cross? Friend, has there been a spear that's pierced your heart? I want you to look today. I want you to look at the cross. I want you to see a fountain of salvation flowing down for you. Perhaps you've never considered the water and the blood. Maybe you haven't thought about that. You haven't thought about the Savior's side. But you need to understand that that blood flowed out for sinners just like you. And that water flowed out for vile, guilty people just like me. And I want you to know today that you can stand under the fountain and Jesus can wash all of your sins away. Do you know the Bible tells us that there is not one sin... Not one evil thing that will ever be allowed to enter into heaven. In the book of Revelation, John wrote, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life.
Friend, here's what can happen for you today. You can have your soul cleaned. You can have your heart pure by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Would you do that today? Would you cry out to him today? Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. The bleeding side of Jesus, the water and the blood that flowed out and that was shed for sinners like you and me. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, again, as we've considered the cross today and what Jesus did on that cross, as we think about the water and the blood that flowed out, Lord, it reminds us of what you've done for us, how you were willing to give yourself And, Lord, how that only your blood can wash away sin. There's nothing else we can use, no other place to go, no work, no sacrament, nothing that we can do that can ever take away of this problem of sin. Only your blood does that, and people need to be washed in that fountain of blood that flowed from Calvary. I ask you, Lord, that you might speak to some lost sinner's heart today. Convict them of the gospel of Christ. May your Holy Spirit open their blinded eyes, and open up their heart so that they might receive you as Savior. For those that are saved today, Lord, help us to be mindful of what you've done. And may we be aware, as we should every day, that there are people that are dying and need you as Savior, and we need to give the gospel. Speak to our hearts today in this invitation time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you